given $1 million, doubled every days. You remember this, right? This is when we returned to the power of compound interest and exponential growth. At the end of 30 days, that doubled penny was just over. Turns out, the same concept applies to missions. Imagine you filled a football stadium with 100,000 people for a gospel outreach event, and 20% 20 of them came to know Christ. That day, 20,000 20, people came into the kingdom. If you did that every that day every for a year, a year, over 7 million people would, people come, to would come to faith. That sounds pretty great, pretty right? Great. Here's, Here's the, the question, question, though. If you, if you kept, kept that pace of 7 million people each year, how long would it how take long to would it the take world's population, world's population of 8 billion, 8 billion Over 1,000 years. 1,095 to be exact. A 100,000-person outreach event every day for a thousand years. Every day for a, from a pure years standpoint, from mass evangelism, mass evangelism will not reach, will not the, reach the world in our life in our lifetime. What about a what about a strategy inspired by that original math problem? Math problem? Instead of instead of 100,000 people every day, every suppose day. you made one suppose you made year disciple focused each. on their development, focused and equipped them to, to make, make their, their own new disciple every, every year. At the end of the first year. You would have two followers of Jesus, you and your disciple. Disciple. At the end of the second, of the second, you would have four. You would have four. Eight the third year. The third year. Sixteen. Sixteen. And the fourth. Thirty-two. Thirty-two. One twenty-eight. How many years? How many years would disciple the disciples using this strategy? Thirty-four years. Do the math. Something profound having taken multiplication mindset. In the Great Commission. Jesus tells, tells us to go and make disciples of all, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. He continues by, by instructing, instructing us to teach those disciples to obey everything he commanded us. Commanded us. What was his final? What command? was his final command? Go, go and, and make disciples. disciples. So, so our role is to, to make, make disciples those that obey, obey the command to make disciples. Disciples that obey the command to make disciples. Where to go to where all nations to go and make disciples? Making disciples. Making disciples. That's multiplication. That's reach the few, reach the few to, reach to reach the many. What, what if you didn't feel the burden to, to preach to an, an entire village or city or city, or, but instead but instead worth to the, the simple multiplication principles of the Great Commission? The, the entire world could be discipled in our generation if we started with, with just one. What about, what about you? How, How might God, God want you to be involved in making disciples that make disciples and seeing movements of Jesus in every tribe, every tongue, tongue, people, and nation? And nation. Would you rather, rather fill a stadium, stadium every, every day for the next thousand years, years, or commit to making years? one disciple commit this to making year? One Let's do this together. Let's do all until all heard, heard. Starting with starting with discipling. So, who's your one? Who's your one? Yeah. Wow. What that was that was a surprise. Thank you. Um, I know. I'm sure Joe and DJ feel the love from that as well. I am very honored uh, to be called the pastor here at Genesis Church, and I'm grateful for your generosity and just love and grace to me. So thank you for that. Uh, when I was in third grade, I was the around the world math champion. Now, uh, if you aren't familiar, let me explain. 
During third grade, we diligently spent time learning our multiplication table. Y'all remember the multiplication table, right? Yeah. And so in an effort to make the learning experience fun for all of those involved, my teacher would often let us play this game called Around the World in the classroom. Am I, anybody else familiar with this game? Around the world math? Okay, a few of you. Okay, well, the game was pretty simple, and here's how we played it. Uh, one student would stand up, and he would stand, or she would stand, next to one of the desks, and desks were in rows and all that, and so we would stand next to one of the desks, and the teacher would stand in front of the class, and she would quickly reveal a flashcard with a multiplication equation on it. And the game was that you had to answer the equation correctly as fast as you possibly could. The student to finish or give the answer the quickest was able then to move on to the next desk, right? So if I was standing next to the desk and I got it right, I would move on to the next desk. If that person in the desk got it right, they would move to the next desk and I would sit down, okay? So you do this until you go all the way around the room. And then the way in which you won the game, which was very important to me, because winning is important. Go D-backs, right? Uh, <clears throat> very important to me was that the person who... Uh, defeated the most desks was the around the world champion that day, right? And so in third grade, I was not the most physically intimidating person. I was very short. I was scrawny. But when the teacher said, we're playing around the world, fear struck in the faces of my fellow classmates <laughs> as I stepped next to their desk. Because I was the quickest in the West. In fact, on more than one occasion, I was actually able to go around the entire classroom, every single desk, not losing a single flashcard battle. Now listen, I know it's a little odd to flex about winning a meaningless flashcard game in the 1980s, but stick with me, right? Stick with me here. For some reason, I don't know why, math came really easy to me. It came easy to my dad. It came easy to me. It just made sense. In fact, I would go on to take AP calculus in high school, and I would take calculus in college. And all of all the math equations that are possible out there, there was none that made more sense to me than multiplication. It, it just clicked for me almost immediately. And so this morning, we're going to play around the world in this room right now. We're going to test you on your multiplication facts. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. You don't want to do that because my dad's here, and he would wipe all of you in that. He would kill you in that game, right? So here, here's, here's why I bring it. In third grade, I didn't really think much about it, okay? I was a third grader. I was more concerned about the crew cut I just got, which was in style then, and the girl I liked. But I think there was... There was a reason I really jived with multiplication. See, there's this power in multiplication. You know, adding and subtracting is fairly simple. You have more, you have less. Division to me was always very philosophical. <laughs> I don't know why. What is the third of something? It seems sort of something like Plato would have discussed among the Grecians, right? But multiplication, well, there's this power in it. You take two simple numbers, and it makes a big number. Nine times three, 27. 12 times 12, 144. How does that even work? It doesn't seem to make sense. There's this power in it. And then, listen, later in my education, I would learn about exponents. Oh, man, 
the, the exponents literally have the word power in their description, right? Seven to the third power. Like, it's like the guy that made up multiplication was like, this is so powerful, we're going to make it in the name. We're going to put it right there for them. Okay, I'll talk, stop nerding out about math multiplication here. I know that's not why you came this morning, but here's my point. There is an inherent power in multiplication. And because of it, multiplication, it's not just a powerful strategy for math, but it's actually a powerful strategy for spreading the good news of Jesus, as we just saw. So with that in mind, I want you to grab your phone if you haven't done so yet, and you can open up the YouVersion Bible app. You can follow along with everything I'm going to cover here today. If you have your Bible with me, uh, with you, I don't know if we brought the light up, so if we bring the lights up a little bit, uh, you will be in Acts chapter 18. And uh, just a really quick recap. First of all, if you're new here today, you should know we've been in the book of Acts for quite a while, uh, a couple years now. And uh, we're in chapter 18 of 28. We're getting there. We're making our way through it. And last week, Pastor DJ was up here. He had a great sermon for us. He talked a little bit about <clears throat> what Jesus said to Paul in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. And Jesus says to Paul, as he's in the city of Corinth, he says something that he doesn't often say to Paul, or actually, I don't think he says it to him anywhere in the New Testament. He says these words. He says, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent something he knew. But then he says, for I'm with you and no one will attack and harm you for many people in this city belong to me. And so as a result, Paul decides, okay, look, I'm going to stay in Corinth because Jesus told me to stay here. And when Jesus tells you to stay somewhere, you stay there. And he does. He stays there for a year and a half. And along the way, we find Paul is stuck between this instruction that Jesus gives to stay and to, to, to reach the people of Corinth and this promise that he won't be harmed. And we saw last week about how Jesus was, was there and he, he, didn't just, uh, he didn't just fulfill this promise, but he actually allowed Paul to reach people in a way that he hadn't quite seen in previous time. And so, once again, Paul is on trial. The Roman courts only have to have his case dismissed almost as soon as possible. And Paul responds to the instructions. He remains in the promise of Jesus. And everything that Jesus promised comes to fruition, which is where we're going to pick up the story. With this whole court incident behind Paul, his time is starting to end in Corinth. And here's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. Then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centria. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. And we were told uh, earlier that Paul did spend about 18 months in the city of Corinth. So a year and a half after Paul's arrival in this city, very important city, Paul is now making his move to go back home. And interestingly, Paul, or excuse me, Luke makes mention of Paul shaving his head at the end of making a vow. And this was a common Jewish practice that Paul saw obviously as valuable to his commitment and his faith. And it's likely that Paul made this decision based on the instruction that Jesus gave to stay in Corinth. So when he leaves, he decides to shave off the hair that has grown. 
It's kind of an interesting, weird tidbit that Luke decides to include, but I think it's important to understand that Paul is a very serious man, that when he makes a commitment, he does it to the nth degree, right? Like he's not going to just sort of waver on the commitments that he makes. Now, in addition, as Paul leaves Corinth, he's not alone. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And if you remember from the beginning of chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila are fellow tent makers that Paul makes friends with when he shows up in Corinth and have now become believers and even new leaders in the church. And so they head off to Centria. Verse 19. It says, they stopped first at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews they asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I'll come back later, God willing. Then he, sat, he set sail from Ephesus. The next stop was at the port of Caesarea. From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then went back to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. Again, ultimately, Paul is making his way back home. He has been on the road for about three years at this point in the second journey through uh, the, the Middle East, through uh, Asia Minor, through Greece, and now back home. And so as he does, he drops off Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, which will become an important city in the life of the church. And he promises to come back, which he will, and then he travels to the cities where churches now exist, churches that he helped start through these cities throughout the known area, and he strengthens them and he encourages them. And then, right after this, as Paul makes his way home, Luke switches focus from Paul, and he actually shines the light of the story on Priscilla and Aquila again. And here's where we pick it up in verse 24. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught the others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Okay, so Apollos is only mentioned a few times in the New Testament. We find it here in the book of Acts. We hear about him again in 1 Corinthians and then briefly in the book of Titus. But Apollo's story is important to both the life of the Corinthian church, as we'll see, and also the theme of multiplication throughout the book of Acts. So uh, Apollos comes to Ephesus via Alexandria and Egypt. He is known to be well-educated. He's eager to tell others about this faith that he's found, the good news of Jesus. But Luke tells us that he's a bit misinformed. There's something that he, that he hasn't quite gotten right. You see, his understanding of the appropriation of baptism was a little inaccurate. If you go all the way back to before Jesus' own baptism in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Uh, you will read John the Baptist baptizing people in anticipation of Jesus. 
And while these baptisms were done with a sense of anticipation, they were never seen to be the end-all, be-all for those early followers of John. It was a symbol of something yet to come. And certainly, they weren't intended to declare allegiance to John as if he were the Messiah. That was not its intention. And so ultimately, it is only through the baptism in Jesus that is appropriate expression of a person's inward commitment to follow him. And Apollos seems to have this a little mixed up. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, somebody has told him something inaccurately about what baptism is really. He didn't really get the memo on baptism. So Priscilla and Aquila, as they are listening to him talk and teach, they're like, huh, I like this guy, but he's a little... He's a little mistaken on some of this stuff. And so they, who are left behind in Ephesus by Paul, gently take him aside, and they explain things to him. And I don't know, maybe they had a cup of coffee, and they were like, you know, Paulus, we really like you. You're a great guy. You're just, you're a little mistaken on this one piece. And we just want to, we want to set the record straight, you know, we love you, no big deal. We just want to set the record straight. And that one conversation, maybe it was multiple conversations, I don't know, but that conversation was powerful. Verse 27. Now, Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Achaia is not, you know, an area in which Corinth resided. In fact, Paulus would go on to become a leading voice in the city of Corinth and in the church of Corinth after Priscilla and Aquila take him aside. They have one simple conversation. Apollos would go on to be the leading voice in this church of Corinth. And so powerful was Apollos' voice in the church of Corinth that Paul has to address the people of Corinth because they have ascribed their allegiance to him over Paul. In 1 Corinthians 3, it's clear that in the church of Corinth, some have determined, look, I'm a disciple of Apollos, right? And others have said, no, I'm a disciple of Paul. And there's almost like this, like, you know, rivalry going on. Like, I'm a disciple of Apollos. I'm a disciple of Paul, right? However, Paul and Apollos, both of them never set out to be this way. And so Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 3. And he sets the record straight about what's really going on. He says this in verse 5. After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We're only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting, who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. Now, here's what's really important. See, for Paul and for Apollos, they're in the, they're in the multiplication business. Right? They are in the multiplication business. They, they are looking at opportunity in each person to plant a seed, to water it, and then to allow God's grace and mercy and love to grow it. 
And so for Paul and Apollos, the main character in a person's faith story is not them, it's Jesus. But Paul and Apollos, they don't deny the impact that they have made on people. Paul even says, look, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. We're in the multiplication business after all, but let's not forget it is God, it is Jesus who makes faith grow. Now, here's the thing. We could spend time talking about Paul and Apollos and they're great leaders and way to go. I don't care about them in this story. I want to focus on Priscilla and Aquila because I think that Priscilla and Aquila are the real heroes in this story. They understood, maybe more so than Apollos especially, the power of multiplication. Prior to Paul's arrival, Priscilla and Aquila were making tents. They were living life. They were going about their Jewish ways. And then once they meet Paul, everything changes for them. Paul introduces them to Jesus, and life takes on a whole new meaning for them. They spend the rest of their days following Jesus faithfully, including traveling from their hometown in Corinth to Ephesus with Paul and helping to establish a Christian presence in that city. However, Priscilla and Aquila, they never got big. Paul didn't write about them in 1 Corinthians. He wrote about Apollos. They were never Paul. They were never Apollos or Peter or James. They didn't want to be anyone declaring their allegiance to them. And, oh, we're a disciple of Priscilla and Aquila. And that never happened, at least not to our knowledge. They were just simply spreading the gospel in the shadows, one person at a time, including Apollos. If it's not for Priscilla and Aquila, who knows what happens to the church in Corinth? Imagine what it might have happened if Priscilla and Aquila wouldn't have stopped Apollos and corrected him about baptism. How might the story of that church be different? Because Priscilla and Aquila invested time and energy in just one person, Apollos, the church in Corinth would continue to thrive and expand and multiply. I often wonder if we see the importance of that one person, like Priscilla and Aquila, I wonder if we understand the power of the one side conversation or the one coffee date. In other words, is our understanding of how the world comes to know about Jesus based on the idea that people will slowly be added to our church or the church down the street, maybe because we had a great event or because we did some great social media marketing campaign? Is that how we think that the church actually multiplies and grows? Or is our understanding of how the world comes to know Jesus based on the idea that we are to take seriously the power of multiplication? That when we choose to invest in just one person, one teenager, one child, 
And when we choose to invest in that one person who will then invest in another person, who will invest in another person, that the gospel moves forward with exponential power. Are we people who believe that that is the strategy for reaching the world for Jesus Christ? I'll say this. I believe that. But on paper, I don't think we do. I think that we're waiting for a silver bullet. I think we're hoping that if we send out another mailer, people will finally come. I think we're hoping that if we just share one more social media post or live stream, that somebody will hear it. And in the meantime, the opportunity of that side conversation or that coffee date, they're just going by the wayside. The question we have to ask ourselves today is, do we believe in the power of multiplication? Do we believe in the power of investing in one person, teaching them, explaining to them, loving them, serving them as Christ would, that they might understand the good news of Jesus? Or are we hoping that we could just somehow throw some giant event? Look, I remember like a few Octobers ago, some of you were here for this. We did this huge event called Pumpkin Fest. Do you remember this? Okay. It was fun, super fun. We had like 1,600 people show up at our church for free pumpkins. It was outrageous. The, many of people, if I bring it up, they have like, they have like uh, you know, PTSD from it. It was just insanity, right? I'm going to tell you this, and, and I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know one person in this church or from that event that knows Jesus because of it. Which is kind of a bummer. But then I read a story like this and I'm like, well, that was never the strategy. The strategy was us pouring into one person, loving them, sharing them, taking them aside and saying, hey, have you considered this instead, Apollos? Because maybe if you got this right, that power of multiplication in the world would begin to show itself. You know, we don't throw a ton of huge events anymore. Because when I read the scripture, that's not how the church grew. And I don't know, we're not a church to throw events just to throw events. That's not worth it to me. Shouldn't be worth it to you. We want to find a way to multiply the gospel in our world. And, you know, historically, the church has not spread and grown because of massive outreach events and pointed marketing campaigns. There's been some success to that. But if anything, they have produced very little impact. For thousands of years, the spread of the good news of Jesus has come because one person has chosen to invest in another person. The good news of Jesus has spread because Priscilla's and Aquila's chose to pour into Apollos. Look, the church grows through multiplication. It always has and it always will. In fact, the fastest growing churches in the world right now are in China and Iran. Do you think in China and Iran... They are throwing pumpkin fests at their churches today. No, they'd all be dead by the end of the day. Right? 
Like the, the fastest growing churches in the, the, right now in Iran, it, it, the church is not growing because they're sharing social media posts on Instagram and TikTok. Because, by the way, they're outlawed there. The church is growing in Iran because of multiplication. One person investing in and another person investing in another person. This is the recipe for the good news spreading throughout the world. Multiplication. Exponential growth. But here's the thing. It takes everyone to, to buy into that. To believe it. To live as if that were true. It takes all of us deciding that we will pray for and invest in one person in our life. Look, I'm not asking you. God's not asking you. The Bible's not instructing you to pray for and invest in ten. Not even five. Not even three. Just one. One person. That's it. So let me ask you. Who's your Apollos? Who's your Apollos? Who, who is... It in your life where God has drawn you to that person and you recognize, man, this is an opportunity for me to invest, to, to share a little about my faith, to share a little bit about what I have learned that they might know Jesus. Maybe a better question like the earlier video asked is who's your one? Who's your one? Not who's your 30, not who's your three, who is your one? I want you to think of that person right now. Who is that person? What is Jesus asking of you this morning? How can you love that person well? What would it take for you to text them this afternoon and say, let's grab coffee this week? What would it take for you to text them and say, hey, man, I'm praying for you. Who's your one? Who's the person in your life that you're praying for and you're investing in? The person in your life that you're hoping would come to faith in Jesus Christ, that would know him like you know him, that they would obey the commands of Jesus and experience the abundance of life that he provides, that they would experience the same grace, mercy, and forgiveness you have received. Who's your one? You know, as we head into the holiday season, I think this is a really important question for us. Is there are some really cool opportunities for us to lean into and to encourage the one in our life? Everything from getting together with family and friends, Christmas Eve coming up in a couple of months, all of these things. This is an incredible time for us to think about who is the one person in my life that I can be investing in over the next couple of months. I want you to pray about that this morning. I want you to think about that and challenge yourself in the coming weeks to really see and seek out the opportunities to pour into them. Because the church grows through multiplication. And whether you like it or not, you've been called to become a multiplier. Let's pray. God, thank you for the ways in which people have poured into us. I am grateful for the people in my life who never gave up on me, who 
put an arm around me when I needed it and pulled me aside and shared with me or corrected me or loved me well, I, I just pray, God, that we would be challenged in this space this morning to see the opportunity to be multipliers for the kingdom of God. Lord, that we would grab a vision of the power of multiplication, much like Priscilla and Aquila did. God, that through that one conversation, Apollos would go on to have great reach and impact and invest in so many other people who would invest in other people who would invest in other people, God. It just kept that string of multiplication going forward. So I pray that it doesn't stop with us, God, that it just continues on through us. And so challenge us, give us, give us a clear vision, God, of what it is that you would have us do and how we can love that one person in our life that you're calling us to invest in. Ultimately, we thank you for Jesus who gave us the faith that we have, God, that enables us to live the life that you've called us to. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Hey, would you stand with us? We're going to sing one final song as we consider what God has spoken to us this morning.